Yeah, because we'll talk about because there was definitely one that uh, a lot of people talked about was your uh, your claim to fame was the think the best bourbon you ever made was the the 2011 single barrel. Uh, you know, I think I had the year wrong on that too. I think it was <laughs> well, good. I didn't we'll know get the real story. Asked. We'll and, get the uh, real story. Bringing to you the best stories from icons in the bourbon industry, it's Bourbon Pursuit. Now here are your hosts, Ryan and Kenny. Hey guys, Ryan here with uh, Bourbon Pursuit. Uh, the next couple weeks we have a two-part episode with Jim Rutledge from Four Roses. So uh, we have episode one this week and episode two the following. Enjoy. Thank you. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or thebourbonconcierge.com. And you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. And they're off for another Gift 270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 000 do you ever pour yourself a bourbon, swirl it around, and then start struggling to come up with tasting notes? And perhaps you're also looking for a good Father's Day gift idea. Well, you can now solve both with a kit from Nose Your Bourbon. And unlike other nosing kits on the market, Nose Your Bourbon kits feature real ingredients for the most authentic aromas. You can smell real Tahitian vanilla bean instead of some synthetic aroma that's just made from chemicals. So head on over to NoseYourBourbon.com and enter code BP10 for 10% off your order. Welcome back again to another episode of the Bourbon Pursuit Podcast. My name is Kenny, and I'm here again with today with my co-host, Ryan. How you doing, buddy? Doing well. Uh, doing good. Just happy to be here at Four Roses. Excited to talk to Jim. Four Roses is one of my favorites. Uh, like we talked about with Al, it's had a little history in my family, so it's cool. Uh, to talk about the history and hear the stories. Yeah, the one thing I like about Four Roses is that their their approach is very unique in, in the way that they uh, do a lot with their single barrels and the labels. And it's it's one of those things that if you think of when it's uh, in relation to say like wine country, when they think of oh the, you know the the barrels were facing the east 
quadrant and it had you know the They're great in the South Valley. Yeah, they the had all, all these different things. And, and Four Roses is definitely great about. Uh, giving consumers that sort of information, right? So they're giving them that that ability to understand. So we're very fortunate today that we are here with Jim Rutledge, who is the master distiller here at Four Roses. So Jim, uh, again, thank you first for for being on the show today. Uh, it's definitely a pleasure and honor to be sitting here with you. So I guess you know when we start talking about this, you know, I don't want to just jump right into Four Roses. You know, we kind of want to learn about you a little bit. So I guess kind of give us an understanding of, you know, what was your first experience with bourbon, right? Like, do you yeah, remember that, that first bottle? You remember that like, first hey, bottle or, or, you know, what, what kind of made you like think of whiskey and moving into that industry? Uh, well, first of all, it's good to be here with you today. <laughs> it's uh, great having you here at Four Roses. But uh, if anything, my first experience with bourbon would have driven me Away from the industry, not to draw me to it. It wasn't good. I, I think that's most of people's experiences. I remember sneaking bottles out of my dad's bar, and that was that was essentially my first experience. And you don't get you don't get appreciation for it at that point. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was probably I was older than a lot of people, but uh, I was probably fifteen or sixteen years old, and uh, with a bunch of my friends, and they convinced me I looked older than everybody else. Not that I looked anywhere near twenty one, but uh, somehow I was a elected to go in and buy a bottle, and I walked by, and uh, we only had a couple dollars or something like that, so I bought the cheapest uh, half pint I could find, and <laughs> it tasted it too, but I, did, I thought, I assumed back then that all bourbon tasted like that. It was uh, it was not a good experience. And, uh, <laughs> well, good. So I guess, then how's that lead into, um, I guess, your, you know, your time, uh, you know, before, you know, I guess should I say with Four Roses, um, you know, into Seagram's and, and all this thing. And, you know, I guess what was your, your stages and journey uh, through different roles that you've had here? Well, you know, I, I grew up in Louisville, went to Atherton High School, uh, what we call the old Atherton, which uh, the new Atherton is now is about 45, 50 years old, something like that. But uh, so it was a long time ago. Went to the University of Louisville, started off uh, in the sciences, chemistry, physics, uh, took some calculus hours for whatever re- reason, probably 15 hours of that. Uh, it's, it's those engineering degrees. Those are the worst with, with math. Well, yeah. I mean, I was, I, I thought at first I wanted to do computer science and they said I had to have four years of math and it's like, well, that's an easy des- decision to switch over to a business major when you hear that. <laughs> well, I went uh, through that for about two years and bored to death. And uh, I guess I had visions of spending a, a lifetime with a white coat and a basement somewhere, uh, <laughs> some kind. So anyway, I, I was bored with it. Switched over to business school, got a marketing degree with a few more hours in marketing that I had in chemistry. If I, uh, they offered degrees in uh, science rather than specifics. Combined physics, chemistry, I'd have had more hours. But uh, so I had major degrees in marketing. Uh, I think I've had three or four more hours in marketing than I had in chemistry. So after uh, graduating, uh, I didn't want to jump at the first job offer I had and through school I've worked at Sears the original Sears Roebuck which way before you guys time <laughs> I was out on uh, between 7th and 8th and Broadway and uh, I worked a couple of years there just helped pay them for some expensive and expenses going to school and I stayed there for close to a year I guess uh, after I graduated and looking for a career opportunity and after what I thought was uh, a long time back then, uh, I had two good offers in the same day. One was uh, 
uh, Seagram, and the other was uh, Philip Morris on uh, 18th Street. So and basically, obviously I took the made the right choice. Which which sin did you want to go with at the time? <laughs> exactly, yeah. yeah, exactly, and that's my two offers. <laughs> and uh, so I started with uh, Seagram and uh, the research and development with Seagram's headquarters uh, in North America, both Canadian and U.S. operations. Uh, R&D was centered or located in Louisville, Kentucky. So that's where I got my start. And uh, my first job there was running gin stills, uh, testing. That was our method back then of testing the, and approving the gin botanicals that uh, were to be used in our gin production. And we, I would distill a gin botanical every day. And then after it was distilled, uh, either that afternoon or the next morning, we would just approve uh, it or not approve it based on how it smelled. And uh, that was my first job, working uh, in R&D. Didn't stay there too long. I went out and was transferred out into the plant operations, and my first uh, supervisory job was uh, in Seagram's Case Good Warehouse. Uh, this is the Cal- Seagram's Calvary Distillery on 7th Street Road, 7th and Central, right a few, just a few blocks from Churchill Downs. We spent a lot of time there in the afternoons. But uh, it's a good so, way to kill kill your afternoon. You know, oh yeah, yeah. Grandma with a paycheck, go spend some money on some horses. And back then wasn't like today. We left pretty much on time, or <laughs> sneak out a little bit. Or we could catch the last two races every afternoon for free. So a bunch of us ran would run down there. But anyway, I you know worked for a while in case good shipping, worked in bottling, a <laughs> little bit in warehousing, uh, just about every area of production. I uh, became uh, work as a bottling. Planner planning all the uh, line schedules uh, of the many products we were bottling and the sizes based on case good orders. And uh, I was bottling floor leader, uh, assistant bottling superintendent, and then became finished goods warehouse superintendent. We'd gone away from the old case good shipping department and built a new, very modern palletized warehouse. And I worked there for a couple of years and then I got the bad news. Uh, being transferred to New York. It was that was in November nineteen seventy seven. I had two years, two two years, I wish. I had two weeks <laughs> to uh, still makes me nervous. And uh, I had two weeks to uh Pack get, get up and get yeah, everything. Get out up there. to New York and uh was, we had a home, my wife stayed back and was selling the house and I went up there and I thought the world would come to an end, but uh, it was back at a time where I either took the transfer or took a hike. I no longer had a job because my replacement as uh, Finnish's warehouse superintendent was waiting right outside the plant manager's uh, office. I remember that day. Uh, I'll never forget that day. I was in a bowling league. I, a week before, I didn't have, I didn't do too well, and I was thinking I really get a couple games or one or two games <laughs> in. And one, a lot of gutter balls. And somebody <laughs> caught me and said, uh, uh, Jim, plant manager wants you to see. I said, how in the world did he know I was sneaking out of the plant early? <laughs> no and I uh, went down there, and it was it was pretty devastating. And uh, But I ended up going to New York. I was transferred up as chief industrial engineer. Uh, after a while, I became uh, production division budget manager for all the uh, overhead operating budgets for all uh, the operating distilleries in the United States. And then uh, when we started getting computers, I was the first person when uh, when I went up there. We did everything manually, but these 
not this modern calculator like I have here <laughs> right now that I've had since 1980, but uh, on these great huge machines, and uh, it was. But we do everything manually on the on the budgets. And uh, when computers came out, I put everything on uh, laptops or computers. And well, the, it wasn't laptops back then. In fact, uh, we shared computers in the New York offices. Uh, Punch cards and all that sort of uh, stuff back I, then. Uh, it was uh, it was like a you know tabletop uh, computer like we have now. But it was I, I don't know how they operated, but I'd have to go through everything on, on all the calculations. Then I hit a calculation key and go back and sit in the office for half hour <laughs> to an hour waiting on the calculations to complete because it was being shared throughout that building I was working in. So anyway, got everything on. Once we got uh, computers upgraded, then I added distillery planning, long-range distillery planning to what I was doing, and which got me a little bit back into uh, uh, something related to production division and distillery operations, and that was, which I failed to mention, I had two different... Uh, uh, stents as a distillery shift supervisor when I was uh, after came out of R and D. So, uh, and what distillery you know, was that this, for at the time? Well, it was still the Seagram's Calvert Distillery okay. in, in Louisville, it's Seventh Central. And uh, throughout all the years, I was in New York every year at annual review. Uh, I was reporting to and asked if I had any questions. I said, "Well, I just have." Uh, one thing to say and ask, and that is if there's ever an opportunity to get back into distillery operations, uh, I would sincerely appreciate at least being considered for it. I missed uh, operations. People in New York, of course, couldn't uh, begin to understand why somebody has an opportunity every day to wear a three-piece suit and a tie to work would ever want to go work in a, back in a dirty <laughs> distillery. And, uh, of course, our distilleries... Our, whether it be ours or anyone, we're not dirty, but that's the perception they had. And uh, But after uh, quite a few years, I did get an opportunity. In 1990, he came to me and asked me if I'd been serious all those years about wanting to get back into distillery operations. And, and I just looked at him and said, no, of course not. I've just been kidding you all these years. And <laughs> he knew I was serious. It's the longest said, running well, joke ever, yeah. right? Yeah. So uh, he said, well, I'll tell you what, things have worked out so well with you up here. I'm thinking about retiring within the next one to two years. Before I go, I'm going to do everything I can uh, to fulfill that dream of getting back into distillery operations. So I did get back uh, to Kentucky in 1992. Who gave you that opportunity? Uh, this guy I worked with, his name is Stanley Birchall. Uh, most, uh, I enjoyed working for him. He was he was an amazing man, full of energy, enthusiasm, but his integrity, credibility, respect uh, above anybody I've ever worked for. And uh, he taught me uh, a lot about uh, the business world and life to me. Uh, people often ask me, who's your mentor in uh, distillery operations? And it's hard to understand when I say uh, my boss in New York, Stanley Bershaw, and uh, because he taught me more than uh, – he taught me a lot about life. Uh, I've always been, uh, I guess, uh, good is never good, perfectionist. Good is never good enough, and, and he was worse than me. So it was quite a combination. <laughs> and, and during budget work, uh, I carried some things out to four or five decimal places. Right. Because uh, that meant when you talk about millions and millions of units, that, that could mean something. 
if I made a mistake in a third or fourth decimal place, he would find it. And all these numbers. And uh, But it put me on my toes, made me better. And uh, we, I think, uh, appreciated working for each other. I know I worked for him, uh, appreciated working for him. And we still stay in touch. And, uh, uh, of course, he's been retired a lot of years now. But he retired at young, about 58 or so. And uh, super guy. He influenced me more than anybody in my in my career. Good. So then, so Four Roses, when you came back to in 1990, is that about what happened? 92. I can't 92. Back. It was still domestic only. Though. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we were still part of Seagram. And uh, when I got back, I became the Kentucky area manager or assistant manager uh, in charge of all administratives. Uh, I was asked if I could come straight to the distillery. I said, I've been out of this for close to 15 years. I need to sort of ease back into that. It's not fair. I said, I'd love to. But it won't be fair for the people that are working for me if they uh, if I go in and uh, just take over and uh, being away from it for so long. Mm-hmm. And so I eased back into it. And, I, and actually, in ninety, I worked down at our Cox's Creek facility, did all the uh, budget works, uh, operating standards for all the Kentucky area. Then in ninety four, I was transferred to uh, here to the distillery and became master distiller in January ninety five. So it was uh, it was good progression, getting my feet wet back in production operations after being away from so long, and uh, yeah, it's been a success story ever since. That I actually started Four Roses Bourbon uh, was purchased by Seagram in 1943, and then Seagram, of course, was a blended whiskey company. They introduced a blended whiskey, a new blended whiskey, to add to their vast portfolio of brands back in 1945, and. Uh, called it Four Roses. It looked like our yellow label, uh, Four Roses, slightly paler uh, label, Four Roses at the top of the label, Red Roses, uh, the logo, and then be- instead of saying bourbon below the Red Roses, it said premium. In small print below the premium said a blend of 100% American whiskeys. So it was a good blend of whiskey when it was first introduced. And uh, so the bourbon, that was in 1945, uh, Four Roses Bourbon had become the number one selling bourbon in the U.S. immediately following uh, uh, the repeal of Prohibition and stayed that way through the 30s, the 40s, and most of the 50s. Now, back in all those years, 30s, 40s, 50s, and probably halfway or more through the 60s, blended whiskeys were all considered top-shelf brands, where bourbon as a category was considered down near the bottom. And, but that was primarily because the giant in the industry was Seagram. Mm-hmm. They've been putting away, uh, I think it's a little over six years of invent- barrel inventories awaiting the day that prohibition would go away. It had to right. go away because it generated no, so many more problems than ever abated. It had to go away. So they were the overnight giant because everybody else was starting from scratch. Even these six distilleries that were... Uh, they had their licenses uh, or whatever. Well, there yeah. was a permit to sell, not to produce. There was only one distillery that stayed open to produce for all of them. They weren't producing except for one time during Prohibition. And one distillery made uh, based on each distillery's mash bill, grain recipe, and yeast. They produced for each of the distilleries at one distillery location. That was the... Stitzel Distillery, not yet Stitzel Weller. They hadn't combined, but it was a Stitzel Distillery that uh, stayed operational, but it only ran once to replenish barrel inventories. 
But of those six of the inventories, their inventories were relatively small. And uh, Seagram was this giant, and it was their influence that put Blended Whiskies up at the top shelf. And the Brofman family who started, uh, Sam Brofman started Seagram and purchased a Joseph E. Seagram uh, distillery in 1926, right around that time anyway. And uh, they were not fans of straight whiskeys of any kind. Mm-hmm. It was blended whiskeys. And so back in those, when I started... They tried, they tried to create the, the premium category for themselves, right? They well, said, this, that, this is what that, I prefer and this is what everybody else is They didn't try to create it. It was the premium category. And, you know, there was uh, like Seagram brands. When I started in 1966... Uh, Seagram 7, now that was not a Canadian blend of whiskey. It was made in Lawrenceburg, Indiana, in Relay, which is a suburb of Baltimore and Maryland. But uh, that was selling close to 12 million cases a year domestically. That's numbers. Nobody, Everybody just shakes their head. I mean, it's totally unheard of today. But Seagram also had Crown Royal, Seagram VO, and there was other distilleries, Canadian Club, for example. They dominated the whiskey market back in those years. Probably 7-Up, too. Seven, seven. Seven and 7-Up. Seven. Yeah. I remember my first 7-7. Seven, seven. I knew what 7-Up was, but that other stuff sort of ruined the 7-Up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I remember that very well. Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point-of-sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point-of-sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in-line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus Magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S dot com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. So let's move a little bit forward to when uh, Kieran came in the picture, right? Well, uh, Seagram, uh, you know, I started trying to bring even when I was working in New York, Sigram uh, sold all of his bourbons in 1988 to devote all of his barrel inventory for bourbon to the one growth market in the U.S. and the Japanese market shot had shot through the roof. And uh, so we sold a lot of well-known brands today, uh, bourbons, and I started immediately trying to get bourbon back to the U.S. and it became a burning passion once I got to the distillery. 
and I had ongoing debates. It was never, ever going to end with Seager Marketing. I've worked up there for a number of years, and I didn't know most of the guys I was talking with, but I, I, had, I wasn't intimidated because somebody worked in New York. And uh, so we had this ongoing debate, and it was really not going to happen. There's a long story and uh, uh, things that we could talk about, it, but it really, unfortunately, didn't happen until Seagram was uh, announced, announced in December 1999. Uh, Seagram had purchased uh, uh, Mr. Sam, probably. we called him Mr. Sam, when he died in, uh, I think it was July 71, turned it over to his son, Edgar. And when Edgar uh, Broppin was retiring, he, in the late 80s, he turned the uh, uh, operation of Seagram over to his one of his sons, Edgar Jr. And Edgar Jr.'s uh, his priorities in life and uh, goals and his enjoyment in life were the arts, uh, whether it be music or uh, film, theater, and Seagram eventually uh, purchased United uh, Universal Studios. And so we own that, and toward the end of the 90s, uh, Universe, uh, when AOL and Time Warner were, were merging, uh, Edgar Jr. thought that, well, to protect our stockholders, we've got to do something. So he merged with this company in France called Vivendi, and that was in... Uh, See, that was in uh, December 99, it was announced that Seagram was going out of business. The first move, this we then became known as Vivendi Universal. And the first thing we heard out of Vivendi Universal was that we're no longer interested in the distilled spirits or beverage alcohol business. We're selling it. Took Pretty sure they gave, gave a scare to everyone uh, at that well, point. It, it sure did. It was a tough two years. And I met with all of our employees probably – if it wasn't every week, it was very close to every week. Uh, I didn't know much more than anybody else, but uh, I was a Kentucky area manager and people, you know, in Kentucky, I guess uh, they, they thought I would know and I really didn't know anything else, but going through a crisis like that in people's lives, it was, it's good to have a sounding board and, uh, and I would just stand and listen and, uh, let them beat me over the head for a couple of years. <laughs> and it was a hard two years for all of us. And in December 2001, Seagram was out of the business. Uh, we had uh, Seagram's brands went two different directions, Diageo and Pernod Ricard. We were in the Pernod Ricard group, but every took two years to consummate the sale because we were in every we Seagram were in every country around the world that allowed beverage alcohols and. Just about everybody had to pass our equivalent of the Fair Trade Commission. That's why it took two years. Well, the European Union did not approve the sale of the Pernod, 39% of the brands that went to Pernod Ricard unless they divested the Four Roses because of our presence in Europe, which we were the top-selling bourbon in most uh, of those uh, countries. So it went up for sale, and locally uh, it was put on market. It was a bidding process, blind bidding process, three-stage blind bidding and Brown Foreman was uh, bidding. Buffalo Trace and Heaven Hill uh, entered to a partner, partnership agreement. Uh, Constellation Brands, uh, primarily the wine company that owned Barton, was bidding on it back then. And I think Campari got in late, but and Kieran got in. Kieran was the distributor of Four Roses Bourbon for Seagram in Japan, and they didn't want to lose that business. And it was a top-selling bourbon in Japan. 
So they jumped in and they ended up purchasing. And my first question of Karen, uh, I'd met people a couple of times. I'd, I'd given all these bidding groups, including Karen, tours of the distillery, answered their questions. Uh, I, did, I couldn't ask questions of them. And actually, I always introduce this guy standing beside me. He's, uh, I can't remember his name, but this is so-and-so, the Price Waterhouse cop, making sure I was being fair to everybody, not telling uh, one person a, something was anybody else. <laughs> yeah. I know, I know a few people work for PwC, so that's, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go. Oh, ahead. it was. Uh, I'm gonna go ahead and write that one it. down. Yeah, and, use that uh, one later but it was, mind. you know, it was a, a, a reasonable thing because uh, I couldn't be, and I had no intention of being unfair to you know somebody else. Uh, being fair to everyone. So anyway, I knew who was uh, eventually. I'd given all the uh, tours, and I'd heard uh, when back in late fall of 2001 who was going to be the winning bidder, and it was Kieran. And uh, so I still, uh, I met with some of them one time. They just asked some questions, and they came back in first week of January 2002, and they were here for a couple of days asking questions. They were getting ready to go up to New York to negotiate some ancillary agreements with Diageo, Pernod Ricard, and uh, some others. And uh, finally, they asked uh, Jim Son, do you, would you have any questions of us? And, of course, my first question, I didn't tell them what I thought of the blend of whiskey Seagram had with our name on the bottle because it had become a very bottom-shelf, inexpensive, not very good, being polite, uh, blend of whiskey. And uh, I said, uh, Seagram has a blended whiskey that's not made in Kentucky, has nothing to do with our distillery, but uh, except it ruined our name that once we once had it. A little tarnishing. Yeah. And, uh, but I said, are you willing to pull that off the market, make it go away, let us bring our bourbon back home, where we used to be the number one selling bourbon in the U.S.? Uh, and I said back then, I said, given an opportunity and given some time, I am absolutely convinced that eventually – United States, which we've been out of for years, and the Four Roses name had been tarnished by the blend of whiskey, I was still so confident in the bourbon we could put in the bottles that uh, I said, I'm confident, given time, that we can, the United States will become the number one global market for Four Roses. And whether they had, they probably didn't <laughs> Didn't believe much of that, but uh, <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. I think you're predicting the future. So if you go ahead and just write any six numbers down on a piece of paper, and I'm going to go ahead and just cash that in for two dollars on Saturday and see what happens. I can promise you that doesn't work <laughs> <laughs> from ex- based on experience. <laughs> but uh, I was very confident about that, and I think that will happen actually this year. Uh, that we, United States, all of a sudden, the last few years and uh, I've been trying to uh, get us to uh, prove putting more barrels of bourbon away every year. I, was, I could see this coming. And I, I guess I was confident. People thought I was, I guess some people around here thought I was crazy. And uh, for thinking how far and how fast we could go. But uh, I think we first started in our case sales in 2011. All of a sudden, we jumped 42%. Over the previous year, and people started. Oh, I said, well, "This can't go on." Well, 2012, we jumped 58 percent over that number. And what's going on? I'm saying this is going to keep on. And uh, it's. And I used to explain it. I was trying to get us put more uh, barrels away. 
I said, we're like this little bitty tiny snowball at the top of a mountain, just beginning to roll down this mountain right now. <laughs> uh, in a few years from now, it may be 25% uh, or a third of the way down, but it's going to be so big, there's no stopping it. It's going to keep going. And I was still basing everything on the quality of the bourbon we could put in the bottle. The, the labels, the bottles are important. That sells one bottle. But what's inside, to me, sells the 5th, the 10th, 20th, and so forth. And uh, it's, the, it's the crack effect, right? Getting that little taste, and they're just going to keep on coming back, right? Well, that's, that's right. I mean, it's uh, – but that's that's the way I felt. Anyway, so now we have – 42% in 11, 58% in 12, 2013, we jumped 71% over 12. And then last year, the end of 2014, uh, people began to take note. We jumped to 71%. So, oh my gosh, you know, this is really happening. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, the bourbon market, uh, you know, those numbers sound huge. They are huge. But remember, we're just now back in the U.S. and we're start, starting from this small base. Now, these huge numbers might be a very small percentage with the giants in the industry. Mm-hmm. But that just means that we have that much further to grow. Uh, it's that many more opportunities. <laughs> and it's uh, it's going to keep on. Yeah. And uh, I guess so what are you most excited for in the future of, of what's going to happen with Four Roses with this, this bourbon boom that is happening? Well, we're going to have to get through a tight stretch. Uh, two or three years from now, we're, we're going to get uh, we're going to be very pretty tight uh, inventory, inventory wise. Yeah, yeah. and uh, but we are. I mean, here we, we were. We were part of Sigrun. The biggest majority of what we produced at this distillery, some of our bourbon was shipped into Canada for because of the smoothness and mellowness of the bourbon we produce here. Uh, became flavoring components for. Brands like Crown Royal, Sigrun VO, uh, and some other blended whiskeys, even in Sigrun 7. We had the Four Roses bourbon market in Europe and Japan, but the majority of what we were doing was blended whiskeys. So we've taken all this, what we were doing for Four Roses bourbon, and then uh, what we were, how, when you're talking about a small percentage in Sigrun 7, when they're doing four or five million cases a year, we were down to by then. That's a lot of uh, flavoring, mm-hmm. a lot of gallons. And uh, so all that's gone away, of course. And now we're to the point where uh, we will need to almost double the capacity of our distillery. Right. So, I mean, is uh, there, are there it's plans? It's exciting. Uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're working on that. Right. And uh, we're going to have to build a new bottling facility. We're going to have to build warehouses down the road. Uh, distillery operations. These are all in the planning stages now. We, nothing's been cast in stone. Because these aren't these aren't cheap things to do either. Right. As, as no, most that's people right. it takes some time. It, yeah. it takes some time. To, uh, you yeah. want to make the decisions right and not make any mistakes in doing these things. So it's got to be hard forecasting eight, ten years down the road. So it's like oh, it's uh, you know, I, I wish I, I was doing this for all the uh, when I was doing the distillery planning in New York. I was doing it for all the distillery for all, whether it be a one of, uh, you know, 50 or 60 Seagram blended whiskeys, uh, all the bourbons they had, the straight rise they had, uh, anything with uh, whiskey or gin or vodka, I was doing the planning for all of it. And gin and vodka is easy because you can distill it today and bottle it tomorrow, but uh, anything that goes in a barrel, uh, light whiskey as a flavoring component for a blended whiskey, it had to be aged a minimum of four years. That's by law. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, then the, the 
bourbons, rye, corn whiskeys, barley whiskeys, barley bourbons. All these components made at all the distilleries, long-range planning. And it's a challenge. And it's, uh, uh, you know, whose crystal ball is better than the next person's? And you got to base it on experience. Of course, you know, people in marketing are very optimistic. Right. People in production are conservative. So, and I was trying to balance the two, and uh, and that's what we still sort of do the same thing right now. Whose crystal ball is best? Right. And uh, if you make a mistake, you can you can either have a facility that's twice what you need, or half of what you need, or you know, or you, you guess have, right, or your existing uh, it's facility. That's right. So, uh, but I think it's uh, the growth we've experienced in the last few years, and. We've got so far to go. It's going to be sustained for so long. Uh, we talk now, and you hear people talking about we have more barrels of bourbon in Kentucky than we have people uh, some, somewhere around, and I don't know exactly I've, what it is. I've also heard that we have more barrels aging than we have people and horses combined. So no, I've, I've, heard, not, I've no, heard a lot. No, I don't think so. I've seen a lot of <laughs> horses around, and it, it could be. Maybe thoroughbred horses. Maybe. Uh, it could be. But don't we? I think the population somewhere around 4.3 million, some plus or minus. And we have over 5 million barrels in inventory right now. So 700,000 plus or minus horses. I don't know how many horses. That's a, that's a, that is <laughs> a, lot of, that's a pretty big herd of horses. We'll, we'll bark, ballpark something. But uh, you go back, and 40% of that now, see, it's not only growth in the U.S., 40% of those barrels are designated for international markets. So uh, 3 million are designated for use in the U.S., satisfy U.S., U.S. demands, 40%, 2 million uh, in international markets. And you go back to the late 60s when only about 5% of the bourbon uh, that was being produced in Kentucky was uh, being shipped overseas. We had about 9 million barrels in inventory versus 3 million now. So we've got three times, uh, grow three times, and we'll catch up about where we're relative to what's in the U.S., and uh, so it's going to be sustained for years to come. I think it started when uh, uh, the distilleries, we didn't really change anything we were doing in the 80s uh, when uh, we started focusing on, focusing on premium bourbon brands, like single barrel bourbon, small batch uh, bourbons. Blanton's was the first, uh, was that 82 or 83, somewhere around there. And then uh, the Jim Beam series, small batch uh uh, series in 87, around that time. Uh, Booker, of course, Booker Noe, the mm-hmm. famous master distiller, uh, Basil Hayden, uh, help me, Knob Creek, and then uh, what am I missing? Uh, Bakers. Bakers, right. Those four, and then everybody started uh, chiming in, doing the same thing, focusing on, you know, this is how good we are, and that's how we got the message out. And so that uh, slowed the decline that we've been uh, having for 20 years, began to level off. And by the end of the 90s, uh, we began to grow. And then this uh, century so far, the last 15 years, has just been phenomenal. It keeps growing. And uh, a lot of it it started, I think, and has continued because people have begun to see uh, around the world uh, that we are a premium whiskey, and there is another whiskey in this world besides Scotch, and it's Kentucky Bourbon. And uh, so we've got a long, long, long way to go. 
And uh, so we're just beginning. This this right. growth, I really believe, that's going to be sustained for years and years and years to come because people finally begun to realize how just how good and versatile bourbon is. And, uh, I mean, guys are sealing. And right. It's, uh, it's going to keep going. It's going to keep going. And that completes episode one of the two-part series with Jim Rutledge from Four Roses. Uh, if you want to follow us on Instagram at Bourbon Pursuit, also uh, on Twitter at Bourbon Pursuit. Uh, I think I said everything, but Kenny usually does that, and I forget. I don't know. Anyways, we'll see you next week. Thanks, guys.